Thanks for reading, Neil and Lucy. It's great to see them. It's uh, been a while since they've been with us. Um, it's good to be with you here this morning. And um, as I said at the opening, if you are a youth of any age, feel free to sit upstairs together because we're not going out there together. And Max, feel free to sweeten the deal. You know what I'm saying, right? So there, and I mean, when we go out, basically the, the, the magic of that is we get to sit kind of in a circle, learn, and look at each other. And it, I think it actually goes back to the roots of what, you know, church in the ancient times it was home church. Even Jesus in his synagogue was more like sitting around and facing each other versus all looking forward. So we're going to do that a little bit this morning, try and get up close and personal with the passage as we, uh, as we talk about Jesus. So the passage as read actually went on a little further, and it, it gets tense. It actually ends with Jesus, they want to throw him off a cliff. We're going to try and figure out how they got there and what this passage is about. And in fact, how Jesus, as always, leads them and us on a path of repentance and true turning to God. So I want to, I want to open with a story. Uh, so this summer, um, you know, after COVID, I finally had a chance to go home. So Alberta is one of the homes where Cleanza and I are, are from. I lived there for 10 years. Cleanza grew up there. So I took Callan and I took Treya and we got in the little Prius and we drove through the Smoky Valley. No air conditioning. That, that broke down. Windows sort of cracked to get up to Alberta. There's no really stop in between, so it's sort of a 13-hour or nothing kind of journey. At least that's how we do it. So there we were, and you know, as I do, I was trying to push the Prius. How far can we actually go on our 40-liter tank? 797 kilometers, actually. But pushing that hard and that late at night, it actually meant the light was blinking. I actually had to turn into a gas station just outside Edmonton. And as I did, I started pumping the gas at 10 p.m., I see someone in my, in my peripheral vision walking to the station, and my brain does that thing like, oh, he doesn't belong here. I wonder what he's about, pumping gas. And suddenly, a guy, a young guy, is standing on my bumper asking me something. And so it, it, uh, it caught me by surprise. And you've got to know, as, I'm, as I was driving up there on the way, I'm listening to podcasts, as I do, and, and the CBC podcasts in particular are called Twisted Histories about the indigenous history of Canada has really got my attention this summer. And who's standing on my bumper but a young, maybe late 20s, indigenous young guy. Tattoos, but not the nice hipster ones, you know. He'd probably been in prison, you know, tattoos all over, looking sad and saying something like, could, could, you, tell me, could you tell me how to get on the bus? I, I'm not from here. My mom's in the university hospital. They, t they tell me she has cancer and maybe this is her last night alive. I'm pumping gas. It's 10 p.m. My, my Prius is packed, like bikes, and there's no, literally nowhere to sit. There's Callan, there's Treya, there's me, and maybe a little seat where the seats are fold down. So I, I start sort of thinking on the fly and get out the phone. I'm like, well, I, I could maybe tell you where a bus stop is. I mean, again, we're like 20 kilometers out of Edmonton in a little town. And, uh, and then I, I said, like, well, you know, and my mind also is like, do I believe his story? Maybe you've had these conversations with people on the street. You know, yeah, I don't know if I believe it, but there was just something, a little desperation in his eye and pleading in his look. Please believe my story. I just need to see my mom. And so I, there, was a, there was a white truck beside me, and he was pumping gas, and I was thinking out loud. I was like, well, 
I found the bus stop, but I, I literally don't have room. Maybe, maybe someone like this guy could drive you to the bus stop. Guy, white guy comes around the pump. I'm not given no, he swore, effing Indian. A ride or no money, I'm not. He gets in his car and he drives off. So there we are, stunned silence. I knew what I had to do. I had to do something. And so before you know it, I'm like, well, we're going to find a way. You're going to get in and we're going to drive you somewhere. And as we're, as we're driving, you know, this guy, his name is Dakota. He starts telling me more of his story. And uh, Trey is there and Callan's there. And it wasn't a happy story because it's not just his mom who's sick. His dad had recently died. And he had, in fact, been in prison and is just out. And he's not reconciled with his family who might be there at the hospital as he's about to go visit. And so it was really quiet in the car, and I'm trying to say a few encouraging things, how we're going to be praying for him. And I don't know, just to let him share, it seemed to lighten his mood, but I could tell, you know, it didn't feel great for our kids to hear that, but there we were. And so I said, Dakota, we're going to, we're going to drive, you, drive you right to the hospital. And so, but he, he actually needed a bit of time. He says, no, now that we're close, I actually want to take the bus from the mall there. I know how to get there from here. So sure enough, we drop him off. And then we had to decompress as we drove to my brother's house and sort of pray together as a family, like for what we had just heard and, and for this guy and his story. So I went home, went home to Alberta, and I faced painful uh, reminders of prejudice and, and pain in the community. So as we come to our passage today, Jesus has gone home, and Jesus is going to face, face down some prejudice and some pain in his community as he comes as a prophet to bring God's word to them. So Jesus, it starts like this in verse 14. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everybody praised him. So he hadn't made it to Nazareth yet where he grew up. And if I had to title the passage differently, I might say, Jesus the Influencer. It's like he'd been speaking and doing things in the power um, after his baptism. And if, if it was today, maybe he was like trending on TikTok. You know, people are filming him. And like, so then the people at home are like, well, I know him. That, that's Joseph's son. Why is he blowing up? Why, why is his, he's just Jesus. Like, we know him. What, what is he on about? And I wonder if, uh, particularly if you're young, if you've ever tried to be something new or do something new and you start to get some hate, you start to get comments or online comments, which are probably even more painful. And I think that's what's happening to Jesus. He's trying to be and do something new and for God, and, and he's, getting, uh, he's getting put down, which he's about to find out. So then it says, he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. So I was really helped um, by the fact that it's actually really important to understand where he is and the context and is really important. So this book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, really helped me here to understand Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, and what might be going on. So what you've got to know about Jesus' hometown was that he grew up there. He would have gone to synagogue with these people for these 18 years. He would have, that's what they did. A serious Jewish person would have sat together in the evening and talked about Torah. So they know him and he knows them. But what you have to know about Nazareth 
It's not a town that w- was in the Old Testament. Uh, Jew- uh, Israel's broken history meant that over hundreds of years, people were you know, yanked out, pulled out. So that part of Israel was sort of emptied out in the 700s B.C. And then in the 500s B.C., the, the rest of the Jews were yanked away to Babylon. And so... Who moved in, the people who had been there even before the Jews, the, the Gentile people, people from Zarephath, people from Syria, would have moved back in. So then when the Jewish people were allowed to return, starting in the, in the 500s and then progressively onward, those who created Nazareth were zealous for the Lord, wanting to create a Jewish homeland, pushed the boundaries up to, to where they felt like they belonged. So how do you do that when there's a people already there. You push them out. You go to their villages and you say, this is mine. You go to their farms. You cut down their trees. It's, it's still happening today in that land. You tell people that you're not godly. You're unclean. Get out. This is our hometown. So Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, was likely very conservative, very nationalistic, a proud settler town with a reputation. So I'm reading this, I'm reading his book, reading the passage. I couldn't help think about where we live, about the way Canada was founded, about the way BC and Vancouver itself was founded, about the stories we've heard about settlers coming from Europe and other places that took land that was not theirs to take, pushed away people with a long history here, founded things like residential schools which the word school itself is an offense. It's not a school. It was, it was a horrible time in history. So I looked up, just I wanted to look up Vancouver in, in this context of, of stories, and I, I found a story from 1913. So what we know today and enjoy today as Kitts Beach, that area, then it goes Vanier Park, where you have the planetarium and the Molson Brewery and like the beautiful park there under Burrard Bridge, that whole area. In 1877... Uh, the federal government, uh, through the Indian Act, uh, allotted some, some land there um, and called it the Kitsilano Indian Reserve. However, 36 years later in 1913, so about 100 years ago, the, the same government forced those Squamish people to abandon their homes so that the city of Vancouver could have what we have today. So we could have Kitts Beach or whatever we wanted to build there. So we who make the rules apparently can change the rules in the middle of the game. Has that ever happened to you guys in a game? It really sucks. But that's what happened. The, the government or the city officials likely put the Squamish people on a barge, um, offered them small sums of money, which many of them didn't want. They didn't want to leave. They, they shipped them away on a barge. So this, this is a picture of the, sort of that raw land where they had been living. Took them away burned down their homes and uh, attempted to sanitize, wipe them from the story of Vancouver. I think there's a next picture, one more picture of the actual people who were living at that point. So here we are trying to make a city with, with based on European values and constructs, but you have a traditional ancient people who, who use those fertile shores for fishing and hunting and traditional life. The two didn't seem to match. One had to go. 
So even as I tell that story, it's painful, right? We don't like thinking of our city that way, of ourselves that way, that we would have the potential. So Jesus is in his hometown in Nazareth, helping them to think about where their city came from and what God might have to say. And it's, it's the Sabbath day when he comes into the synagogue that day. So a sacred day, it's like showing up on Canada Day and, and sort of reorienting people's view of themselves and of their country. It's challenging, but that's what Jesus leans into. So the first challenge of this passage is about hometown. And who are the hometown people God is calling us to go live among, to speak to about his gospel? Are, are they our post-Christian friends who are tired of hearing about Jesus? Um, they think they know it all, and God might be saying, go speak to them about me. Are they our non-Christian friends at school that when they think of church and Jesus, all they think of is the bad stories and the pain in the residential schools, and God might be saying, go speak to them about Jesus. Live Jesus among them. So actually, this is the first moment in our, our time together, our little discussion, where I actually want you to turn to, to whoever you're sitting with somewhere near you and talk about two things really briefly. Who are people close to you that would be really hard to speak about the gospel with? And if you did, what do you think their resistance or reactions might be to the gospel? So wherever you are, if you're not near enough, you can sit alone and just think about that. But just take a few minutes, turn together, and talk about that. Who are these neighbors, and what are their issues when it comes to the gospel? Just take a moment. Now, this is where I get to break in and interrupt good conversation, but I actually want you to hold these people in your hearts and minds and this conversation, because I'm going to invite you to pray about that at the end. You're going to pray about this together at the end, because the challenge of this passage, part of it is, do you know who these people are, and will you, like Jesus, go to your hometown? Jesus does it out of love. Will you go to your hometown? 
So let's read, let's again think about what is it then he stands up, he's in his hometown, what is the message that he brings to them that ultimately gets them very riled up? In verse 18 and 19, he, it says, it reads like this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Again, he's just been baptized. He's literally saying the spirit is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Sounds awesome, right? Sounds awesome to our ears. It doesn't sound great to their ears as we're going to see. And again, I think as we frame it in the issues God might be calling us, it actually sounds way more challenging if we let it. So they were already suspicious of his popularity. And the way he reads the text, which is from Isaiah 61, if you had a Bible, you could open it and do a little comparison. The way he reads it makes them really angry because he does a few very interesting things, as Jesus always does. He's reading his father's words, and he's allowed to interpret it. And he's, that's, his, that's his thing. So he does a few things. He omits, he takes some things out of the Isaiah passage. He puts something in. For example, he, at the beginning of the Isaiah passage, he takes out and binds up the brokenhearted. Perhaps that is how the Jewish the people, the Nazareth people thought of themselves. Oh, we're the brokenhearted. God is going to bind us up. He adds in Isaiah 58, which emphasizes to set the oppressed free. Jesus is trying to drill down and add that to the Isaiah passage. And then at the end, in, in, um, as in the passage here, he takes something out completely where it says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, Isaiah goes on to say, and the day of vengeance of our God. That's how they've read the passage in the past. That's what they want to hear when he reads from their favorite text. But there's even more than that. He, he doesn't even keep reading in Isaiah, verse 5 and 6, that talked about God comforting the Jewish people in Zion, mourning in Zion. Verse 7 to 11, that talks about God repairing their ruined cities, making Gentile enemies their servants, so that the Jewish people can live again in peace as God's people as their enemies serve them. Jesus leaves all that out, and they are not happy. So what's the deal? In a sense, like I said, he's quoted one of his favorite texts, but he's turned a text which they saw as judgment into a text of mercy. See, they believe that in the messianic age to come, it would be a golden age for them. It would be a day of God, God's vengeance on their enemies. So Jesus, he rolls up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, he sat down, and the eyes of the synagogue were on him. And he began saying, pushed it even further, he says, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow, stunning, like a lightning bolt. And then verse 22, which I think we've mistranslated in English, where it says they all spoke well of and were amazed. Uh, Kenneth Bailey brings out from the sense that's probably more accurate, and it says, all witnessed against him and were amazed. Well, you can read more like the word aghast, but not in a good way, at the words of mercy that had come out of his mouth and said, is this not Joseph's son? So he's speaking truth to power, and they're angry. But what he's about to do is lead them in a couple stories 
to go on with his reading that are meant to lead them to repentance. So in verse 25 to 27, he gives them two stories from the Old Testament that model the kind of repentance God is after. But they're not the, kind, they're not the stories of the heroes they want to hear about. They're not stories from Moses or David. What stories does he pick from the Old Testament? First, he names a widow from Zarephath. A woman, someone from the lowest rung of their society, and a widow and an outsider. Second, he tells a story about Naaman, who would have been a Syrian army leader. Again, the enemy, an enemy oppressor of their ancestors. So the two stories he wants to help them learn about repentance are from their enemies, from the people they've displaced, people group they've displaced out of Nazareth area. The Old Testament records stories about them, two unlikely people at the moment of their desperation, a woman who's starving, ready to have her last meal, and a man, uh, an army general who has leprosy and would have died. Elijah and Elisha interact with these people, and those two people make unlikely decisions to trust Yahweh, and they receive healing, and they receive what they need. So then it made me think, what are the, is there faith stories from our region here, kingdom of God stories that might be from our traditional enemies, so-called? So I, I found two. One is from, again, about 100 years ago. I don't know if you knew this, uh, church and young people. There was what's called the Great Fire of Vancouver from 1886. So again, over in, in Vancouver, probably around that Kitts Beach area, that Burrard Inlet, was the first sort of settler inhabitants. There were about a thousand homes they built up, and you know the, the, the indigenous people were being pressed, and, and, uh, but the, the, the settlers were settling. But one night, a fire swept through their settlement, and all but three of those thousand buildings burned down in about 30 minutes, and many people were killed, and, and everyone ran to the ocean. And so over on the North Shore, the Squamish people, apparently led by uh, an elderly woman. The, the CBC article named this woman, uh, and the woman in the article was the great-granddaughter of this woman from the Squamish people. They saw fire uh, of people who were oppressing them. What did they do? They got in their boats. They, roar, they rowed over to Vancouver, and they, they brought the white settlers in their boats, and they rowed back to, to North Vancouver. And some of those white settlers stayed there and and beautiful relationships were formed of provision and belonging and salvation. So people who had every reason not to help did the kingdom of God thing by helping. Second story I heard was just yesterday and it made its way into my talk. Uh, we did a charity bike ride, Ride for Refuge for Inner Hope Youth Ministries. It's a, it's a ministry that helps troubled youth who Many of them are indigenous because that's who represents, is represented over, overly in our troubled youth population. So one of the ladies who's an intern with Inner Hope was given a moment to share at the very end. And uh, she just shared this gripping story. She had been helped by Inner Hope Youth Ministries herself through her own youth uh, after a period which uh, she was struggling with addiction from all the you know, the addiction had been passed on because you see this, this population of people that's been harassed by the government, by settlers, is uh, troubled. There's an addiction, there's pain. So she, like many, had fallen to that and in her hope helped her 
um, through the process. She came to have a, a healing relationship in Jesus, which she spoke beautifully about. It tears were in my eyes. Um, she was speaking to the youth, the indigenous youth there yesterday, saying, if your parents, if you have not seen them for years, like I have not seen some of my kids who are ripped from my hands by the government, hold on, because your parents love you. Just like I love my kids that I can't, can't be with because of all that's gone on with the Ministry of, of Social Services. She has a, a new little daughter she's raising in a different way. So I just thought, there's a story of faith, uh, an, an Indigenous young woman who's come to faith, who's part of the healing of herself and part of the healing uh, of other youth. And it's such a great example to me and to our church. Will we step forward like that story of faith and extend our wallets and our time for the healing of the youth generation that needs it so badly. Kenneth Bailey says, the church in every age must keep this holistic package together. Proclamation, justice, and advocacy. So that's the story Jesus is, is narrating from Isaiah 61, saying, I'm God's special messenger to realign you with God's justice, mercy, and and um, proclamation. So we have to dig in a little bit and say, what is proclaimed? He says, I'm preaching good news to the poor. Our minds immediately go, because we're wealthy, our minds go to the economic poor. But Jesus and his people in the early church were all poor. And so does the passage even mean that? In fact, it probably doesn't. It can mean that, but especially in Isaiah's day and Jesus' day, other verses would have popped to mind Verses that say like this, those, the poor are the meek, those who tremble at the word of God. The poor are those who earnestly seek to love God and their neighbors. So when Jesus says, I've been sent, the kingdom of God is for the poor, that's who he's thinking of. So everyone at every economic level, are we the poor? Are we the ones who earnestly seek God? Because that's what his kingdom is about. Yes, also about the economic poor. But just like you and me, you know people who are, are poor and maybe not seeking God. And you know people who are rich, who earnestly seek God. So economics isn't the center of poverty. There's something inside. And Jesus saying, that's my kingdom. I'm coming to address that. Second, in his message from Isaiah, he says, I'm, I'm being sent for freedom and for justice. So Isaiah would have been talking about the enslaved Israelites in their, in their exile. Jesus, in their day in Nazareth, was expanding God's justice to include even the Gentiles who'd been displaced when they created Nazareth. And Jesus says, I want you to think of them in God's justice. And again, I wonder today, church, us, are we thinking of who God might want us to care about? And I think that includes, maybe at this time, especially includes our indigenous people. Actually, I just slipped up there. I was reading something today, yesterday, that when we say our indigenous we actually have, have to sort of clean up that language because they're not ours. No, the, the indigenous people of Canada, I think really are part of the people who God is saying, I care about their freedom. I hear the groans and I am acting on their behalf. Are you with me? And finally, in the, in the Isaiah passage, he quotes, it says, he will open the eyes of the blind. That's, that's really the center of the passage. Jesus is creating a way uh, and a kingdom where people will see clearly, see the world around them, see God's justice, and say, yes, I want that. I want to earnestly seek that. 
This is the kind of not simplistic gospel. This is the whole gospel, the kind of gospel that people like Martin Luther King Jr. preached. He was primarily a preacher, and social advocacy came out of his preaching. It's the kind of gospel that you'd want to tell people like George Floyd's family, like, oh, it's a gospel that's going to make things right, versus a gospel, oh, don't worry about George. Things will be better someday in heaven somewhere. No, that's an offensive gospel. Actually, the real gospel says justice, freedom from oppression, light, healing. So this kingdom that Jesus is bringing in, that he's emphasizing that morning in his hometown, and that he's saying to us again, is a kingdom that says, I'm bringing it now and later. So now he's bringing it, I think, in unlikely ways through unlikely people. So again, like I heard yesterday at Inner Hope, he's bringing the gospel there in ways I needed to hear afresh. He's bringing it in the Himalayas through Himalayan life. The gospel is vibrantly caring for people. And he will bring it later. There's a kingdom of full fullness coming in when Jesus returns here and restores life and creation and people here. So it's, it's popping up among us, if we're willing, and it's coming later in its fullness. Do you see it? Do you want it? Do you want that kind of kingdom? To help us think about this kind of kingdom of justice, mercy, and compassion, we have a special guest that is about to come and speak to us. And as our special guest comes, there's actually a little video that will introduce the special guest and uh, the type of videos that will be made more and more. So as he comes, feel free to cue that video. Yeah, we got to clap for that. <laughs> David's going to be learning, uh, sharing some more stories with us, and Max's video is about to drop soon, so we'll watch for it. But we have the privilege of having you with us live this morning. And I, I called Max up to speak because uh, Max has really been orienting his life among care for the poor as he's uh, taken a social work program at Langara. And uh, so, Max, as I invited you up, I just wanted to ask you just a couple questions. What has motivated you to invest, in particular, working among the needy? And, and in, as you've done that, what kind of hope have you seen? Mm. Yeah, by the way, that was quite cinematic. Thank you for David and Jonathan who made that. Um, yeah, what's motivated me? I think, first of all, what's motivated me is the God that we serve. Uh, like you were preaching on today, a God that when you see him live life as a man, went straight to the oppressed and the poor. Um, and, uh, Let's try again. Oh, is it, wait. Yeah. oh, there it is. Okay. Um, a God that went straight to the oppressed and the poor. Um, a God that not only, that didn't go to them in charity and pity, but went to them to dwell with them 
um, and bring restoration. So I think, first of all, that, seeing what God's kingdom actually is, and in Isaiah 61 and this passage that we read, which is kind of a rewording of that, and Jesus bring that back up, um, to bind up the brokenhearted and crowns of beauty for ashes, or as David said, ashes for beauty <laughs> in the worship. But um, yeah, that, uh, that vision and a God that really is working in those places and bringing people there. And I think that is my biggest hope is just that God is there working. So, um, but other than that, yeah, just the hope that I'm being shaped into someone that can help in those places that looks more like Jesus um, in those places. And yeah, I just think Christ's kingdom coming is probably my biggest motivation. But those little pockets of hope as well, as you were saying, um, I've had the privilege of seeing a lot of God's spirit just poured out on those people um, in the downtown east side and the homeless all over Vancouver, um, which also just brings so much hope and encouragement. Um, to what the Lord is doing and really reminders of his power because it can get pretty dreary over there um, and in our city with these people and just seeing so much darkness and pain and suffering. Um, but then just seeing pockets of the Lord working is really a blessing to be able to see that. So yeah. hearts being transformed. Yeah. yeah and as you've um, worked in the shelters and built relationships with people, I'm sure it's probably been harder than you've thought. Uh, so mm -hmm. I wonder what maybe have you faced as you've leaned in that direction of the kingdom that has been harder than maybe you wanted? Yeah, I think to start off, it's like I'm a pretty idealist person. So going in, I'm like relationship with people. Off the bat, it's going to be great. Everything is going to go well and we're just going to connect and the Lord's going to work. And it's just <laughs> when there's so much pain and suffering in the world, it's just not like that which I think is the beauty of it too, and I've been formed a lot by it, that it does take, it, you're putting yourself into the nitty-grittiness of relationship with people in the world, especially people that have gone through so much suffering and so many walls are up and so many barriers of trust and people have been betrayed in their life by family and friends and the people closest to them. So um, I think that's one of the hardest things is, I don't know, you, the ideal thing is that you would love someone and you would get love back. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it's not like that. And you see that in Jesus' life as well, going to the people that were cast out of the temple and people that really pushed him away, but as he was on the cross said, like, forgive them for they know not what they've done. Just being there and constantly being there. Um, I think that's what I've learned from it, but it's definitely hard every time you go up to someone and try and talk and they're just get away from me, <laughs> like, what are you trying to do? Yeah. Um, but yeah, again, that's where the hope comes in, and that's where seeing his kingdom first comes in, but yeah, I think that's one of the hardest, and then the other would be definitely just looking at the pain, um, and very much going into those places, like I said, like, the relationship puts you in a place where you are carrying burdens with people that are just part of a broken world that aren't meant for humans to carry, um, and that does put a lot of strain on you as well if you are being like a loving person to them and walking alongside them. So I think that's the other thing that's always harder than you think it will be. You hear about the stories, but then when you're looking in their eyes and sitting with them and realizing how that's affected them in their life, it's a pretty powerful place of darkness as well, just sitting in that suffering. So, yeah. Sometimes all you can say is, Lord, have mercy, right? Yeah. 
Thank you for sharing with us, Max. Yeah, of course. Thank you. You can uh, talk to him more later and probably see more on this video coming yeah, up. Come find me after the service. <laughs> That's nice. So as we wrap up, as we head towards conclusion, we've heard what Jesus has said. We've seen him. And so I want to I call us church, and I'm thinking particularly of you, of us, Granville Chapel Youth. Will you spend the best of your energy and life for God's kingdom of justice? Will you make friends with people who maybe have needs far beyond what you yourself can handle that only God can handle? Will you even invest your university degree and all that awesome training in roles and in jobs that won't maybe guarantee you the retirement that everyone promises you should want, but instead maybe would you start a company that would change the world or even a little part of it and make a difference to our planet? Will you spend your, yourselves, your money, your time on Jesus and his value systems? But I need to end with a warning. If you live this Jesus-shaped kingdom life, A, you will offend people. No matter how nicely you package the story of Jesus, this, this God who came for us and, and helps us see what he sees, you will offend people. Later in Luke, Jesus himself says, Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. So if everyone always speaks well of you, we need to think about that because then Jesus says, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and when they insult you and reject your name as evil because of me, because of the Son of Man. So when we take on and live this kingdom, speak about the things that we've spoken up this morning, live it out, we'll be misunderstood, we'll be hated, we'll be maligned. And I know it, if you're young, particularly you feel that. You, you don't want your name to be dragged through mud or, or wrongly accused, but Jesus is going to hold you in it. And he says, you'll be part of me and my kingdom, and I've got it. In the long term, it's my story that has got it, but in the short term, join me in this, and let's work together. As one speaker I heard this week, he said it like this, if you are not getting a reaction from your life, you're not preaching the gospel. You're just being nice. Ouch. So as we end, I, I thought of three things that might help us to live more in this, this kingdom of justice and mercy with Jesus. And number one is this, get to know Jesus better. So youth uh, and you church can join us in this. We've, we've pitched a little challenge that says, Luke by Halloween. Let's read the Gospel of Luke by Halloween. If you start today, it's only six chapters a week. You can read the Gospel of Luke by Halloween. Are you guys on board? Has anyone started? Yeah. Yes. We got one. That's enough. Number two, a challenge I think that comes out of this passage is tell your hometown. Pray about who is your hometown and then obey Jesus to go and tell them with your words, with your deeds about Jesus and his kingdom. And that's really hard because those hometown people might be friends at your school. They might be, might be family members who you have a tense relationship and Jesus is saying, go tell and live my gospel among them. And then I want to give you a third one that uh, is do concrete acts of justice. So I have two examples for you that I just want you to think about. You can even get your phones out at this point some of you might already have them out. Get your phone out. I want to I give you something 
to think about, uh, open a tab, actually open two tabs, because I want you, one response, it says, it says, free the oppressed. You may not think about this a lot, it's painful to think about, but I want you to think about doing a justice inventory of your wardrobe. So what you can look up is ethical clothing brands. You can look that up on one tab. And then on another tab, you can look up unethical clothing brands. On the ethical side, there was only two names I recognized, Patagonia and Levi, apparently doing a great job with, with humane practices, with how they treat the planet. But as you know, those are expensive brands. When I went to the unethical brands page, I was shocked by how many I, I'm wearing and that I, I really liked. Brands like Hollister, H&M, Uniqlo, Nike, Adidas. These are the brands we love. These are the ones, apparently though, that uh, run fast and loose with human rights, uh, literal slave conditions at times, uh, the environment just burned and thrown down in different ways. We as consumers in the era of God's justice, they will listen when people stop buying their brands uh, and want them to change. Some companies have. They will listen when we choose to maybe thrift our clothes, buying secondhand instead of running to the mall. So that's, that's one commitment on this concrete acts of justice. And the second one, maybe a bit of a longer-term project, uh, a commitment is befriend someone on the margins. Would you find ways to find people uh, in need and see if there's something you have, like relationship or maybe resources that they need, but also see if there's something they have that you need. It's always a two-way relationship. So for example, Inner Hope, they're desperate for people to act as mentors for kids from 13 to 18 to walk with them to help them learn to ride bikes, to help them learn to get their first job, to give them a meal when the parent they have might live in an SRO downtown. They just need people like us to come be among, uh, be among them. So we're gonna end now with, uh, I'm gonna invite David up to, get, uh, to sing a song that actually comes out of Isaiah 61. So as those uh, song is sung, just let those words um, be in your heart as an act of worship. And as the song is, just as it finishes, I'm going to actually invite us to turn back towards each other and pray together uh, for one another. So David. <laughs>